Good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. We're going to open God's Word together. If you'd open up to the Old Testament book of Esther, we're going to study that. And if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're walking through the book of Esther. Really, we're coming to a a turning point here in chapter 3, kind of the, the first two chapters were laying the groundwork and just letting us see the, the setting of things in, in Persian Empire. But here, things start to, the heat starts to get turned up here in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So what I'm going to do is we're going to get to work today because we've got two chapters to cover. So I'm going to read both chapters in their entirety, and then we're going to dive in and... Um, study it together. So if you'd follow along, Esther chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 1. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity When he learned of that, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury." The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, 
He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the message, messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. So there's a well-known verse in the New Testament that goes something like this, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. It's, it's well-known, but sometimes we don't understand the context of 1 John 4 and what that statement is all about because it's not about, you know, greater is he who is in you. You know, Jesus empowers you to fulfill your destiny or Jesus empowers you to aim higher in life. It, it's, it's not about that because the verse right before, it's about the Antichrist. It is, it is a verse that is nested in a world that is hostile to believers, it's hostile to God's people, and it's saying there is a power that allows Christians to stand courageously for Christ even when the world is pushing hard against them. A book came out in 2010 that I read a few years ago, but it came out in 2010, and in it, it's written by a journalist, a Chinese journalist, who himself is not a Christian, but he's fascinated by the story of Christianity under the reign of Mao Zedong. And so he does investigative research of Christians and find out how did Christianity survive Mao? How did it not only survive but even flourish in and then after the reign 
of Mao, and he has an interview in the book with a Christian believer named Zhang. And he asked Zhang about her story and what she'd experienced. And Zhang was actually born in 1908. So by the time he talks to her, she's 100 years old. She's got a lot of history. She can tell a lot of stories way back into the early 20th century. But she says everything went downhill on the eve of the takeover in August of 1949. And she said that's when everything changed. And he said, how long did it change? She said, I was a low-class citizen. I became a farmer and I was trampled on, her words, trampled on by the masses from 1949 on. And he said, how long did it last? And she said, until 1983. And then he asked the question in the interview, it's captured in the book, and he says, how did you survive? And she said this, we grew our own crops and vegetables to support ourselves. When we left the church, we weren't allowed to bring anything with us. We walked all the way to the village and before we had even had a drink of water, the local leaders dragged us to a public denunciation meeting. They paraded us around in the village. We faced hundreds of villagers with raised fists, shouting revolutionary slogans. Some spat at us. As the leader worked up the crowd, a peasant activist came up and slapped Bishop Lou on the face. You are a counter-revolutionary, and we have defeated you. Christianity, if we are faithful to the Lord, as believers, we will experience hostility in this world of one kind or another, it's a guarantee. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus told his disciples, the world hated me first and it's gonna hate you next because you follow me. And that's what these stories make clear. That's what chapter three and chapter four makes clear. It's a dramatic display of that truth. This story unfolds in two parts, so that's how we're gonna look at it. The first point is this, the threat of an enemy. <clears throat> that's what's going on here. In chapter three, you see the threat of an enemy and the enemy's name is Haman. You meet him right there in chapter three, verse one. He is the villain in the story. He is a terrible human being before we meet him. And then when we meet him in verse one, he becomes a terrible human being with a corner office. He becomes a terrible human being with a lot of power, with eventually with a signet ring that belongs to Xerxes himself and he can write whatever laws he wants to write. He is gonna be a huge problem in chapter three for God's Old Testament people. You see in verse one, look down there, verse one, the king honors Haman and then he does what? Promotes him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So he is second only to Xerxes himself. He is now the prime minister. He is now the royal vizier, right? So if you've seen Aladdin, he's Jafar. And that's not far off. He is, he is something like that, right? You notice how he's introduced though, because this is important for us to notice is how people are introduced in the story of Esther. Look at verse one. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And that's the same description in, down in verse 10. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So in Old Testament history, and here we are in a historical book of the Old Testament, the, the writers, when they introduced you to a new person and they wanted you to know something about that person, they didn't really locate them on a globe. They, didn't, they weren't so much interested in where this person lived or where they were from, but who they were connected to. Who was, I'm from New Orleans, who was your mom and him? You're right, right. Who's, who's their people? Who do they come from? That's what scripture, Old Testament scripture and Hebrew culture was most interested in. So Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Agagite is not a location in the world. 
Agagite is a personal name. It is a noteworthy person in Haman's family line. And, and Esther and her kinsmen, the Jews who were well taught in God's word, they were told the oral stories, traditions. You say the word Agag, they know. That's a bad guy. That's a really bad guy who lived 500 years ago at the time of King Saul, our very first king of Israel. There was a king named Agag and he was an Amalekite king, and he was really, really bad news. So that's 500 years. King Saul was 500 years before the time of Esther, and they knew that story. Agag lived 500 years ago when King Saul reigned, and he was an Amalekite king. But the, the worst part about Agag is that he was an Amalekite, because the Amalekites and the Israelites had a storied history, even by the time of King Saul. That storied history goes back another 500 years, so now we're 1,000 years before Esther, where the people of God are led by Moses out of slavery under Pharaoh. They pass through the waters, then they're led through the wilderness in the desert for a long, long time, and they are harried, and they are road-weary, and they are tired and beaten up, and they literally have the lashes of Egypt still on their backs. And as they're traveling through the desert, as you read the story, you find out that there's an Amalekite king who looks down and sees this beleaguered, embattled people, and he looks down and he says, they look really, really tired. Let's kill all of them. That was the approach that he took, and so he attacked this tired people of God, and God miraculously saved his people from the onslaught of the Malachites who wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And they were so tired. If you remember the story, Moses couldn't even hold his arms up long enough to continue to pray. It was just very weary. But God saved them from the onslaught and the attacks of the Malachites and freed them from that, right? Well, then you fast forward from there. 40 more years, Moses is about to die. He's got three sermons left, and he preaches them in what you have is called the book of Deuteronomy. That's three sermons, deathbed sermons from Moses. And at the end of the third sermon in Deuteronomy 25, Moses says, don't you ever forget what the Amalekites did to us. They attacked us when we were at our weakest. They tried to snuff out all of us, our children, all of us. Don't you ever forget what the Amalekites did did. So what we're learning is those people are Haman's people. Haman is an Agagite. Haman is connected to the Amalekite people. Bottom line is this, if you're taking notes, Haman's family hunted Hebrews. Haman's family hunted Hebrews. So you fast forward from that moment of the Exodus and from those words from Moses, don't ever forget what they did, Fast forward from there another 500 years. Now we're back to the moment of King Saul, and now here's King Agag. The people between Israel and the Amalekites are still at war. 500 years later, they are still at each other's throats, right? And God tells King Saul, the Israelite king, he says, I'm going to give you victory over the Amalekites, and I want you to put it to bed forever. I don't want you to take a single prisoner. Take them all out. Spare no one. And Saul obeys almost perfectly. He spares one person. I'll give you three guesses what that guy's name was. Agag, <laughs> the big one, the king of the Amalekites. And Samuel pulls up a few minutes later and he says, how come you did 
almost everything the Lord commanded, and the biggest fish in the tank is standing right here. And Samuel makes it right. Samuel grabs an obliging sword and does the business, and it's over, right? But in that moment, there's, there's King Agag again. This is Haman's great, 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 great grandpa, and Haman doesn't look like the acorn has fallen far from the tree because he's got the same aspirations to snuff out the people of God. So when Mordecai sees Haman, this is not a contest of egos. These aren't two, you know, nationalists playing chicken. That is not what's going on. This is an ancient hostility. It's a thousand years old, the whisper in his ears as Moses said, don't you ever forget what those people did when we were weak. They attacked us. They tried to snuff us out. Don't you ever forget that story, right? And so that's what Mordecai sees. He sees Agag walking through the street, strutting his stuff. He sees not just Haman, but Haman's daddy's 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 daddy who tried to take us out. Not only is that coming through when it says that Haman was the son of an Agagite, but we learn something about Mordecai's identity because guess who Mordecai is connected to? King Saul. Look in your Bible, Esther chapter 2, verse 5. We might have passed this over when we read it earlier. Esther chapter 2, verse 5, a Jewish man named Mordecai, we're going to find out not where he's from, but who he's from, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, when you go back and you read in 1 Samuel and it introduces onto the stage of history comes King Saul and it says, Saul, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So what do we see here? 500 years later, you got the son of King Agag, and the son of King Saul. They got the blood of the kings running through them. They have an ancient hostility and a beef that runs back a thousand years. This is not a contest of egos. It's an ancient hatred. And there's a theology tucked into it, and it's this. The world is hostile to God and therefore hostile to his people. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis where everything went wrong. Adam and Eve disobeyed God ate the forbidden fruit, and then just a a flood of curses and sin and misery comes pouring into the world and God shows up and he says, let me tell you what you just unleashed. Now there's gonna be hatred, and he speaks, and he says, now there's gonna be hatred between hostility, enduring hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And as you read from that moment on throughout the entire Bible, what you see played out on the stage of history is a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Two peoples at battle. The kingdoms of this world that will not have God as their ruler and the faithful remnant that belongs to God. And if you're wondering here, In the book of Esther, 5th century B.C., what is the offspring of the serpent doing in the world in the time of Esther? The answer is, he's giving Xerxes reasons to authorize the killing of all the Jews. Haman enters the stage really as a, it's not to overstate it, as an antichrist figure. He is against God's people. He wants to end them just like his ancestors did a thousand years ago, just like Agag did 500 years ago. And, and so what does he do? He goes to the king and, he's, and he carefully words it. 
He gives just enough truth for it to be plausible what he's saying about these people, but also enough half-truths and enough straight-up untruths to make the king think these people are a problem, these people are bad grass, these people are a threat. So that's what he says. He says, let me just tell you a few things about these people. One, it's just a small group of people, uh, but um, they keep themselves separate. There's something sketchy about these people. They've got their own laws. Okay, so there's enough truth in that that the king could say, yeah, that actually sounds like the Hebrew people I know, the Jews that I know. And yet he says, I think that they might be up to something because they break all the king's laws. Well, besides the fact that he doesn't salute Haman when he passes, name one law that these people have broken. They are not a problem in the empire. They are not some brewing, insubordinate people who are gonna to try to oust the king. Mordecai just saved the king's life. King doesn't know it. Mordecai wasn't rewarded when the king wasn't looking. Mordecai stopped an insurrection. He stopped an insurgency, right? So, but Xerxes, anyway, he believes Haman's lies. He buys it. He says, here's the signet ring. Write into law whatever you need to write into law to get rid of these people, execute all the Jews in the empire. And so here's where we need to pause and just think about this. So the reason that Esther is more than just a, a picture of how you too should stand up uh, and, and save somebody. You too should stand up for the Lord and help other people. It's so much more than that. And that lands on us when we think about this. In the big story of history, think about it. If Haman's plan succeeds and all the Jews in the empire, which is to say all the Jews in the world, are exterminated in a single day, realize all the people in the line that leads to the Messiah are gone. There went Christmas morning. There went, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. There goes Calvary. The church will never sing of the blood that will never lose its power. There goes Easter. There goes the empty tomb. Now you know what's empty? Heaven. Heaven will be empty forever because the mediator never got here. And he was the only one who could get a sinful humanity into the presence of a holy God. We needed a mediator to make it right. And now the mediator is gone. In a word, if Haman's plan succeeds, there is no gospel. We're not here today. We're not singing what we were singing 20 minutes ago, right? Because the family tree of the Messiah was severed 470 years before Christmas morning. It's huge what's happening. Our passage doesn't take us all the way to the rescue, so it's sort of, it's sort of a cliffhanger, Esther 3, and then a little bit more of a cliffhanger in Esther 4. But what we do see as we move into Esther chapter 4 is encouraging because, because the story goes like this. The threat of an enemy meets the resolve of a mediator. That's Esther 3 into Esther 4. The threat of an enemy meets the resolve of a mediator. Esther steps into this text in the role of a human mediator. So you see Haman's death note goes out to all the provinces of the known world. And then Esther's gonna get an opportunity to walk in and mediate. She's gonna get an opportunity to have access to the king, to turn the doorknob and walk in to the presence of the king himself, right? And what do God's people do when this death note goes out to the entire world? What they do is they pray. Look at verse three. They fasted, they wept, 
They lamented. You, you read what Mordecai does, and he clothes himself in sackcloth and ashes on his head. He tears his garments. These are the things you did in the Old Testament when you prayed. These are the things you did when your back was up against the wall, and nobody could help but God himself. That's what you did. You lamented. You mourned. You wailed. You cried out to God. You fasted. And they're not praying because they're strong, but because they're weak. That's even a lesson for us. But we don't pray when we're strong, right? Independent, self-reliant people don't pray. They just get it done, right? That's, that's what you do. But weak people pray. Vulnerable people pray. Oppressed people pray. You follow all the way into the New Testament. What happens? The same exact thing. The church does the same thing. It's like they're following the old script. They're abused, they're persecuted. The apostles are beaten half to death in Acts chapter four. What do they do? They hobble their way to church. They gather together with the saints and they say, it's amazing that we were counted worthy to suffer. And now it's time to pray that the sovereign Lord would overcome and would come breaking through the resistance of our culture and give us boldness to preach the good news. That's what they prayed. God, moving signs and wonders here in our city. Their backs are still flayed open, and they're saying, God, do what you can only do. The people pray. The only armor that Christians are told to wear in Scripture is Ephesians 6, spiritual armor. That's it. And how do you put it on? The apostle says, you put it on by prayer. By prayer and supplication, that's how the Christian armors up. So the Jews are armoring up, they're getting ready, they're praying. And what happens? Mordecai, he's crying outside the city gates because unhappy people aren't even allowed to get close to the king. There's a law about that. And Mordecai is crying outside and word gets to Esther. Mordecai is falling apart. And she says, send him some new clothes. It's kind of a superficial response, right? Let's just buy him some new clothes. Clothes look torn up and dirty. And she sends him new clothes and he turns them down. He says, I don't want new clothes. It's not what I'm here for. And then he gets message to her and he says, Esther, you need to know, I don't know if they let you read the paper in there, but here's what's going on. They're gonna kill all of us. All the Jews. You gotta go to the king. I know what I told you a chapter ago was lay low, keep your head down. But that's not gonna work today. You need to go to the king. You need to turn the doorknob and walk in and have a conversation with your husband, the king. You need to reveal your identity, that you always have been a Jew. You're a Jewish girl, and you plead on behalf of your people. And Esther says, you don't understand the situation. You don't understand the nature of this marriage. I've been summoned into the king's chamber for 30 days. I don't sleep in the southwest corner of the building. He decides which member of the harem he wants for a given night, and I don't happen to have been the woman who's been chosen for a month now. It's not like we talk while we're brushing our teeth at night. That is not the nature of this marriage. It's not an informal, familiar relationship. Anybody walks into the king's presence unannounced, including me, that person dies because it's presumption. You throw off his groove, right? Walking in unannounced to get me killed. I thought you wanted me safe. You want me to walk in there? I'm going to get myself killed. And that's when Mordecai says the most famous words in the whole book of Esther. Look down in verse 14. He says, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. So he, somehow he is so confident in the promise of God that he knows there's no way this is going to stop the long-promised Messiah from arriving. 
But he says, but you, you and your father's family will be destroyed. Why? Because you looked the other way and let us all get slaughtered. Who knows, he says, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What is Mordecai saying? He's saying, you're like a daughter to me. I love you more than any human being on earth. But Esther, maybe God has been working all along. Maybe Xerxes isn't ultimately responsible for bringing you here. Maybe God sent you here to turn the hearts of kings to do the unimaginable. Maybe God's providential hand was sliding up into the glove of history and he was quietly working and moving parts. Vashti's out, you're in. Now you've got an audience with the king. You can walk into his presence. Maybe he'll show you favor and you can save your people. It's your primary identity. You're a Hebrew. You're not a child of Persia. You're a daughter of Zion. That's your identity. Stand up in your identity. And we see a theological truth that opens up the Bible in a new way, and it's this. God saves his people using one of their own. That's the story all through scripture. God saves his people using one of their own. In the patriarchal period, there's a famine coming, and it's gonna kill all the children of Abraham. Everybody's gonna die of starvation, but God in this circuitous way, right? Joseph gets thrown into a ditch and sold into slavery and he ends up rising through the ranks and he, now he's got a second seat chair, a position of prominence in Egypt and God saves his people using one of their own. You fast forward from there to the book of Exodus. The people are enslaved in Egypt. They're crying out for help. God sends a deliverer. He doesn't look like much. He's floating down the river in a basket, but that basket goes to the right place. It ends up right in the arms of the palace of the daughter of Pharaoh herself. And Moses grows up with this kind of dual identity thing. Is he a child of the palace of Egypt or is he a child of God? He's a Hebrew and he discovers that and and in that turning point where he realizes primary identity is to identify with the people of God and he says, I don't care about the luxuries that I had in the palace. I would rather identify with the suffering of my people than live in the comforts of the palace and God saves his people using one of their own. You just see it time after time, these patterns in the scripture. Where are they pointing? All the arrows, all the trajectories are flying over into the New Testament where in the fullness of time, God saves his people using one of their own. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God among us. He takes on human flesh. He becomes one of us. He is fully God and he is fully man and he has to be both. He has to be fully God because only an infinite being can pay an infinite debt. So he has to be fully God but he has to be fully man because we're the ones who broke God's law. We are the offending party and therefore if he's gonna pay a ransom, the ransom has to come out of the hand of a human. And Jesus is that human representative, that substitute. And God saves his people, it is finished, using one of their own. Every story in scripture points to the Messiah, tells us something about his person, something about his work, something about the kingdom that he brings, the kingdom that he establishes. And you think about that for a second. So the contrast between the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Persia, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, are absolutely distinct from one another. What does Xerxes say? Xerxes says, anybody can't just come whenever they please. 
What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does Xerxes say? He says, you come into my presence unannounced and you die. What does Jesus say? Everyone who comes to me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Utterly contrasted, the kingdom of this world that rejects God and the kingdom of Christ. You can come into the kingdom of Christ, maybe this morning. Maybe that's your next move. Step into the kingdom of Christ where all the forgiveness is at the foot of his cross where he cleanses us from all the wrong things that we've done, all our rebellion, all our guilt, all our shame was loaded up on Jesus. He bore it in his death on the cross, rises again and says, new life for everybody who comes with me. Go with him, follow him, submit to him, trust in him. We, we get a glimpse of this bigger story when we see Esther The threat of an enemy meets the resolve of a mediator. God is going to, even in the story of Esther, God is gonna save his people using one of their own. He's not sending an angel. He raises up a girl, Esther. And what does she say? She was scared a chapter ago, right? She was trying to figure stuff out. And now she is standing in her identity as a child of Zion. And she says, I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna talk to the king. I'm gonna turn the doorknob, nobody turns, and I'm gonna walk inside, and if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. Friends, this chapter is not here to make us all think, you know, Esther saved the world, I can too. Somebody came and did all the world saving, and his name is Jesus. That's the story of Esther, it's pointing to him. It's pointing to the ultimate hero. He does all the world saving. But when we meet Jesus, what do you wanna do? But be a part of his kingdom, expanding throughout the earth, right? Doesn't it change us when we meet Jesus the king? Shouldn't it lead us to live a life of great boldness in the cause of his kingdom? I read a book some years back, and it was... um, written by a number of apologists and Christians who are seeking to defend the faith from accusations and skepticism and atheism and and a lot of these things. And so they're answering really hard questions about the New Testament and about myths and so forth. And one of the authors writes this in that book, Reinventing Jesus. I love these words. He says, people gravitate toward a tame Jesus. A Jesus who can be controlled, a Jesus who is non-threatening, a Jesus who values what they value and doesn't demand anything of them at all. In other words, a Jesus who is not Lord and Savior. Frankly, it's hard to escape the feeling that our culture has taken Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, and changed it to, who do you want me to be? But the real Jesus doesn't ask that question. The real Jesus is not so tame. We seem to know that instinctively. It's why we keep our distance But something strange happens when we approach him fearfully and humbly in the words of scripture. I love this part. We hear the ring of authenticity in his voice. We witness the genuine authority in his actions. In that book about persecution under Mao's reign, the author, Liao Yiwu, he, he has a conversation with a Tibetan believer, a Tibetan Christian, who told stories about his parents and about his grandparents and their endurance and faith in the hard years. And he said, you know, years ago there was a flyer in my village and it was made by Christians and it was pinned to the, to the wall on the way into our village. 
and it drew everybody's attention because they made, the Christians made it look like it was a missing person's notice. So you didn't just ignore it. You kind of wanted to see who's, who's missing. And he said, here's what the note said. Missing person, Jesus from Nazareth. 1.8 meters tall with brown curly hair, bright piercing eyes brimming with vigor. His voice forceful. He doesn't bow to evil forces and he detests hypocrisies. And the man who was doing the interview, not a Christian, said, let me stop you right there. Do you bow to evil forces? And you know what this young Tibetan believer said? He said, I haven't been tested yet. I haven't been tested yet. In one way or another, if we're faithful to Christ, it will be tested. We will be tested. This is why, friends, we need one another to stir one another on. This is why I hope what's happening this week is brothers and sisters praying. It's the old script. It's what the church has always done to get strong. Praying together, encouraging one another, being reminded, hey, brother, sister, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world.